Welcome back to episode 022 of the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. This is Homer's Iliad, Book 5, Part 2. Last time, what we were talking about was we mentioned the maxim that when a minor character manages to injure a major character, in this instance Pandaros injuring Menelaus under the false guidance of Athena, that that minor character will very quickly meet his end later on. And so we saw Pandaros in Book 5, alongside Aeneas, one of the great champions of the Trojans, fight against Diomedes, who showed his tremendous battle prowess by felling Pandaros by throwing a spear through the top of his mouth and out of the bottom of it, which Homer describes in quite some gory detail, which is something that he frequently does, while also comparing fallen boys to wilted flowers and cut down before their time. And so he both shows the beauties and the horrors of war. And so Pandaros dies in gruesome manner, and Aeneas is injured grievously, and Diomedes then has his shot at injuring Aphrodite, as he was directed to do by Athena. And something you might well ask, which the students ask often, is this. Is Diomedes fighting so well because Athena is helping him? Or is Athena helping him because he fights so well? Because something you might notice while reading through the Iliad is that the gods seem to favor those people who embody the virtues they embody best. And so Odysseus is like a living representation of Athena, but so is Diomedes because of his pure competence. And so the gods, rather than simply helping and empowering the people they're with, seem to be more the universal abstraction of the human embodiment of those virtues. And so Athena doesn't really, she doesn't make Diomedes any stronger. She just gives him the ability to see the next level target, you might say, fighting against the gods, fighting against the attitude, seeing in the bigger swathes. She's illustrating with Diomedes how, how a human moves from one level to the next in terms of perspective. Diomedes was a young warrior focused on killing, like a young chess player who focuses on taking moves. But now he's seen more the general movements, more the abstract patterns that are embodied by large-scale fighting and wars. And so he has become a more effective and a more valuable fighter and now captain level precisely because he can see these patterns and affect the battle in a bigger way. And so Athena is to Diomedes sort of like Nike would be to Michael Phelps or to LeBron James. Nike sponsors these fine athletes because they're so good, because they have abilities which Nike wishes people to associate with the abilities of their athletes. They wish their name to be associated with the highest class of athlete, and so they are. And it makes a lot of sense that they take their name from the god of victory, from the Athenian pantheon, who constantly accompanied Athena, because wisdom is sure victory, if anything is. And we'll talk about that quite a bit during the Odyssey. And so, the reason that Athena seems to favor Odysseus and Diomedes is precisely because they already embody the qualities that she embodies. She doesn't have to give them to them. It's not some sort of uh, lukewarm, liquid idea of 
God's just arbitrarily choosing people and giving them gifts and making them virtuous. No, that, that would teach no lesson to anybody. That's not how anything works. And um, I think just the fact that I could come up with a modern example of sponsorship, of Nike, of the highest class athletes, football, basketball, baseball, which are the highest tier sports we have in terms of gross income that they produce. And so it's just indication of how universally true this seems to be, that those that we call gifted, we still use that terminology, well, it means that they're gifted by the gods, that they embody those qualities which we must associate with godliness. And so a gifted program at, say, a school would be those who are most intelligent. The gifted athlete would be he who performs best on whatever athletic field that is. And, well, in this case, it happens to be a battlefield. And so, Pandarus is dead, Aeneas is grievously injured, Aphrodite attempts to take him off the field, she's injured by Diomedes, Apollo then actually takes Aeneas off the field, heals him, he returns to the fight. <clears throat> we then have Sarpedon give Hector a bit of a come-to-manliness speech and chastises him for his former boasts, which will be a common theme throughout the Iliad, that the champions um, claim they boast at each other before they fight. They'll sometimes boast at each other also to call each other to arms from the same, uh, if they're on the same side as each other, as we've seen Agamemnon attempt to do to Odysseus and to Diomedes, and as we've now seen with Sarpedon and Hector, seen that that's now common practice. And so occasionally, a man will call you to who you've claimed to be in the past and claim that you are not living up to those words in the present and essentially say that you're breaking your oath to your own character, which in a Kleos culture, a glory culture, like the Achaeans and the Trojans, is a major thing to say, but I would say it would even be a major thing to say these days. We say the same sort of thing. You, you know, that was beneath you, or you're not living up to yourself. Um, we have a clear notion of people not being the person that they are meant to be. Um, and especially working in the education field, all the language is centered around that notion. And the whole idea is that you're bringing the potential and actuality of people. And every coach and teacher knows that this is not just using words. This is what we do every single day of our lives. And so, not fake, <laughs> regardless of whatever words you use. Real. Possibly the most real thing ever, because I would say that a teacher as a profession is simply an outgrowth of the parents. We have very specialized knowledge, which we add to the youth, and um, we essentially give them their final fruits, you might say, or their finishing. And in fact, being a secondary ed teacher, I, I consider myself finishing school. So we teach them the high arts, the things that will give color to their lives. And so we can return to the Iliad. So on to today. We see the Iontes, we see Odysseus, and we see Diomedes lead the charge against the Trojans. These are the guys who are absolutely the most effective men on the battlefield, particularly the Iontes, but recall Odysseus and Diomedes, favorites of Athena, <clears throat> always doing great. So, Menelaus then has an encounter with Aeneas, and so Aeneas has just been injured grievously by Diomedes, and so there might be some question as to how, how uh, powerful he is, what is his battle prowess. Well, it turns out that Antilochus, the son of Nestor, actually intervenes and keeps Menelaus from fighting Aeneas, which means what? Well, Antilochus is the son of Nestor. Nestor is known to be the wisest Achaean, and therefore Antilochus is obviously very intelligent. 
Um, in fact, later on, when he gives some very bad news to Achilles, he's going to do something highly intelligent. In particular, he's going to hold Achilles' hands so that Achilles doesn't reach for his dagger and cut <laughs> until it hits his throat. I'll actually read that passage to you at that time because, well, uh, it it's there. I believe in book 18. Um, yes, yes, I believe it is book 18. Well, in any case, Menelaus is about to fight face off against Aeneas, and Antilochus, son of Nestor, who's clearly very intelligent, intervenes. <clears throat> Why does he intervene, and what does that say? Well, it must say this, that it's at least widely known that Aeneas is a better fighter than Menelaus, because if Antilochus intervenes between them, that means that he is afraid that Menelaus might die, because if Menelaus might die, then the whole war effort would be for naught. And also, Agamemnon might be very, very, very punishing to all the men if anything happens to Menelaus. So actually, it's slightly unclear whether <clears throat> Antilochus intervenes simply because Aeneas is known to have such tremendous battle prowess or because of over-security of Menelaus. But I would suggest since that doesn't frequently happen and won't happen very frequently in the future battles, that <clears throat> this is a redemption of Aeneas's battle prowess. The fact that he can stand down in a can champion, and recall that Menelaus did heftily defeat, handily defeat Paris, so this further heaps indignities upon Paris's name, because, well, Menelaus beat him, Menelaus is here being beaten by Aeneas, or at least not even fighting Aeneas, and Aeneas was just defeated by Diomedes, and to add to that, Diomedes would be such so defeated by Aias the Greater, and Aias the Greater so by Achilles. Uh, do note that there was no Hector on that list. <clears throat> it would be hard to place exactly where his strength is, but likely he's not as strong as Diomedes, Aias the Greater, Agamemnon, or, or um, Achilles. And, uh, the reason that I say this is that later on there will be a one-on-one -on -one combat with Hector that's set up between the Achaeans and the Trojans. The true one-on-one -on -one combat we want to see. And who the Achaeans hope get drawn by lots are Aias the Greater, Diomedes, and Agamemnon, suggesting that those are the three men who would most likely, and in the minds of the Achaeans, who have good battle minds, good strategic minds, they they must think those are the three men who could definitely beat Hector. And the list is nine men, all very gifted fighters, so those guys must be above and beyond everybody around them, except for Achilles, who's even above and beyond them, which is incredible. So, Antilochus keeps Menelaus from engaging with Aeneas. <laughs> now, we get a second major fight. So a claim I've made throughout these lectures is this, that superficiality versus substantiality is the same uh, or is a major characteristic of the fight between the Trojans and the Achaeans, or that the Trojans embody superficiality just as the Achaeans embody substantiality. Well, <clears throat> This is also still very much a real fight, and so it has to be believable. Or rather, we understand that the Achaeans are a powerful fighting force. We don't yet understand the power of the Trojans, particularly with the example of Paris getting thrashed earlier. So, now we've seen that at least one Trojan, Aeneas, the number two or number three guy, I think really the number three guy on the Trojan side, Hector being one, Sarpedon being two, Hector and Aeneas being three, um, well, he stood down an Achaean, so that shows that the Trojans at least are capable of defeating Achaean-level champions, or champion-level Achaeans, which is 
good for them. Uh, now we get a major battle between Sarpedon. Uh, some call him Sarpedon. I really like that name, but I call him Sarpedon mostly um, because of my crass American accent. And he is a son of Zeus, the Lycian chieftain, and the head or the number two guy at Troy right now underneath Hector. He is about to face off against an Achaean named Tlepolemus. Tlepolemus is a son, he's an, he is one of the Heracleides, one of the sons of Heracles. And so, why is he one of the sons of Heracles? Well, precisely to say that he is a powerful warrior. And so, what is he going to help us to do? Establish the credibility of the Trojan champions in battle. Um, and so, they both throw spears. They square off and they throw spears. Both are hit. Sarpedon is hit in the thigh. That's a major hit. That's a lot of pain. Uh, big muscle there. Tlepolemus, well, he's hit in the throat. He immediately dies. And so what does this mean? This means that Sarpedon is a major fighter, but that he's going to be out for a little while. This also gives us the opportunity to see something about Hector's character and his goal-oriented attitude, which is this. Sarpedon gets picked up by his companions and put under an oak tree. He screams out to Hector to defend him, but Hector's so full of battle theory that he continues running on. And so that's actually a pattern that will repeat in the Iliad because after Book 8, the Achaeans are going to build a wall. And outside that wall, they're going to put spikes. And so, like Mr. West Chance mentioned in our Classical Conversations 002, um, the Achaeans are going to fortify themselves and find themselves fighting for a wall just as the Trojans have, and they'll feel a reversal of position due to the will of Zeus, indicating uh, that conflict can turn even the best structured society upside down if it's an internal one. And so when several Trojans in their chariots encounter the spikes that the Achaeans have dug in a pit outside of their walls and they find themselves tangled up in there and fodder for archers and stabbing spears. Hector will leave those men there as well. And so he's far more a killer of men than he is a saver of men in this case. And so something that you will notice is that Homer has very human characters and that they certainly have flaws. He's not a perfect man, Hector, especially having done this multiple times. But he'll also show great tenderness to his soon-to-die son, whom he will indicate knowledge of he will indicate that he has knowledge and knows, therefore, that his son will soon die, and he's still tender and loving with him and willing to take off his helmet and show a fatherly role, and kind even to his wife, that he gives her a very creepy speech about hoping that he doesn't live long enough to see her led away by an Achaean champion as a slave. Though that is that will be her fate, so he shows some clear-sightedness there. But he's even kind then. But he has his flaws, just as Agamemnon has his flaws, just as even Odysseus has his flaws. These men have flaws because they are made to be, well, substantial and therefore realistic. So, Hector leaves Sarpedon behind. And in fact, I only know this because a student once brought this to my attention by saying, Mr. Schmidt, my favorite, when I was, I was giving a, a vote, I was giving a I was giving them, the students a choice or an opportunity to speak up and tell me who their favorite character from the Iliad was. And I had a young lady raise her hand and say, Pelagon. And I said, Pelagon? Who is that? <laughs> because I'd never heard of him. But he's the name of one of the Lycaeans who pulls the spear from Sarpedon's leg. There's another Pelagon, too. Perhaps even a, another one. 
Um, but that's one of them. So if you remember that name, well, the reason I do is because of one of my students. Well, as Hector leaves Sarpedon behind, perhaps we might question whether that was a poor decision on his part, because then he goes on a killing streak. In fact, his killing streak is so powerful that Hera and Athena absolutely have to defend against it. So a movement, an entire movement of the Achaean army, uh, 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 a change of focus is required in order to deal with Hector. He can't simply be ignored at this time. And so Athena descends uh, with an extended description of her, her ornate armor. Um, and she has also with her the Aegis, and the Aegis is the Aegis buckler. It's, it is the um, shield of Zeus, which has the face of a gorgon, like Medusa on it, with the snake heads. And so it represents nature, and nature's ability to utterly terrify those in front of them. And so when she shakes the Aegis above the Achaean army, it will sh shed pure terror into the Trojans, because it will be the terror they feel at seeing a larger more dangerous animal than they are, pure, feeling the pure threat of a superior army to her. And so Athena bears the Aegis <laughs> over the Achaeans. Hera then asks Zeus whether she can set Athena against Ares, effectively asking, can I set the, can I allow the Achaeans to start defeating the Trojans? Zeus, of course, being the principle of order, ascents, and Hera likens herself to stentor, which is where we get the adjective stentorium, which means uh, of good public speaking ability. Um, and so stentor had the voice of 50 men, and so a powerful, beautiful speaking voice like Dr. Martin Luther King uh, would be a stentorian voice. And so this, uh, this rousing of the men, the speaking like stentor, well, it stirs strength of the men. How does it do that? Well, it unifies them in, uh, by, by unifying their resolve, by focusing their resolve. By focusing the resolve of a people, unify them closer together, which is why uh, the book of John begins with the Logos. And we choose what to do with the Logos. We're either Thersites and working towards disunity, or, or we're Odysseus and we're working towards unity and therefore strength. And so embodying the wisdom of uh, Solomon, which is, but let our might be our law of right, for what is weak proves itself to be useless. Wisdom, two ten to eleven from the Revised Standard Version. So Athena is going to go down against Ares and defeat him. How is she going to do this? Well, she's going to have to embody herself. What does that mean? She goes to find Diomedes, and Diomedes is nursing his wound, nursing the wound that he received from Pandaros before Athena came to not heal him, but rather relieve his pain for a time, indicating that motive force moving towards a goal can help you to relieve your pain, uh, which is an, essentially an existentialist claim, too, that the only way to deal with the suffering of existence is to move towards some um, arbitrary end. But I, I, here, the gods, it, it's not arbitrary. And so we'll, we'll deal with that claim later. So Athena first attempts to rouse Diomedes by saying that he's not worthy of his father. And this is about the second time he's heard. That is the second time he's heard that. First time from Agamemnon. So you might imagine that Diomedes is getting fairly sick of being compared to his father in a negative way. But again, he's also very gracious to authority. So here he actually shows a capacity to bargain with the god, indicating for one, his good standing with Athena. For two, her, her capacity as the wisdom god means that she'll actually negotiate. She'll actually talk to and reason with the humans because she represents their capacity to reason. And so in some ways, the people 
whom she choose to, chooses to embody herself in by sharing her plans and wisdom with them, they have a chance to negotiate and speak with her, suggesting that perhaps wisdom is a question-answer sort of format like those who do inquiry suggest, which is, there's one thing that questions, there's one thing that answers. There's an Odysseus and there's an Athena. There's a Plato and an Aristotle. There's a Socrates and there's a uh, whatever student he has that day, Phaedrus. Um, but so Diomedes feels free to uh, respond to Athena, and perhaps this also indicates his, uh, his blooming wisdom and his blooming competency, the fact that he, he is wise enough to give his reasons to her which are correct, and his reason is this. He says, what do you mean, Athena? Why are you insulting me? The reason I'm not fighting right now is that I have the vision of the gods, but you told me, do not fight against any other gods. I see Ares out there doing damage. It's not because I'm a coward that I don't fight against him. You told me not to. Wisdom told me not to. Well, wisdom, or competency, as Athena is now, she's going to join Diomedes. So what does this mean? This means that he continues to increase in competency and can now take on a larger role. And what is the role going to be? Attacking Ares. Well, Ares is going to be a far more fierce opponent than Apollo. Apollo is impossible for any human. Patroclus, Achilles, and, uh, and Diomedes all know this, the most powerful Achaeans. There's no chance. However, Ares is a bit of a... Just as the Trojans, he is a more superficial aspect of war, more like a violent individual. And I would say having done Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu back in Milwaukee, there were lots of people that would walk in who were of violent natures. They never lasted because uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu required intelligence, uh, grit, determination, integrity, uh, intangibles that were valuable. Also discipline and time and athleticism. And So the people that were often most talented were often the people who would be most talented athletes in any sport. Um, people who, who were athletic and had endurance and were strong and were willing to learn and adapt. And those were the athletes. And the people who just wanted to hurt people, well, they would often end up getting hurt themselves because if you have a desire to hurt indiscriminately, well, you're a person too. And, well, you're very close to yourself, so that's often how it goes. So, Diomedes responds that he's doing exactly as Athena said. And so Athena says... Okay, let's fight Ares together, which means she'll embody herself in him. And how does she do this? Well, she pushes Thenelus, his charioteer, out of the chariot, and then she becomes the charioteer so that Diomedes can do the fighting, so that he can throw the spear. And so she sets the motivational goal. He has to achieve it. And in fact, she'll continue to do this in the Odyssey, especially for Odysseus, even in his final challenge, as I've mentioned before. And so what happens here? We see Ares, and he's twirling his spear, and he's stripping a body as we first get him. And so we see how superficial and greedy he is, that he, even as a god, endures the indignity of stripping a body. Uh, he, and he embodies the most ignoble aspects of war. And so even when he sees Diomedes, his eyes light up, and he attempts to stab. But just like a violent tendency, he... He misses the mark. And so Diomedes, stabbing at Ares, being guided by Athena, competency or wisdom, hits Ares in the depth of the belly beneath the war belt. <clears throat> Ares then lets out a scream far larger, about, what, 
200 times larger than a Stentorian yell, which is nine to 10,000 men. And that was a nightmare to teach about five years ago when everybody was saying over 9,000 in reference to memes about Dragon Ball Z slash GT. That was annoying, especially when I was an early teacher. Everything was annoying. And so Ares screams out in utter pain and returns to Olympus. And there on Olympus, he bitterly complains about Athena to Zeus. And that's a big mistake on Ares's part. Because Athena is essentially the favorite daughter of Zeus. Um, she implements his will on Earth. She does exactly as he says. Uh, most often she's extremely obedient. She's just like him in that she implements his will in the world and even jumped out of his head, indicating that she is the will or the, the conscious expression of his will in the world because, of course, Athena works through humans and so... When Athena works through humans, she is the active motive force of Zeus, and so that is the principle of order in the universe working through a human when a man embodies Athena and injures Ares. And so when Ares complains, Zeus is not going to be very sympathetic to that because Ares is the antithesis of him. And so Ares complains about Athena, and Zeus says that he hates Ares above all other gods. He actually uses the same linguistic formula uh, saying that you, above all you are most hateful to me because of warlike actions always being dear to your heart, which is precisely what Agamemnon, also embodying rightful authority and order, said to Achilles in his capacity to produce conflict. Though Achilles's capacity to produce conflict was usually applied to others. Now it's being applied to the Achaeans, and well, it's showing exactly what it is that he does. Something I didn't say about Achilles earlier is that his name comes from the word Acho, which means pain or to cause pain. And so he causes pain or suffering or anguish or grief to all those around him. And yet Zeus says to Ares, recognizing that he understands his fundamental place in the cosmos, though his fundamental role is to destroy that which Zeus maintains, he says, because you are my son, I will not, I will not deign to see you suffer, because of course Ares is an immortal god and must always exist as a principle of conflict, and is even necessary to produce greater order for Zeus, which Zeus is not, of course, mentioning at this moment. And so he has Apollo in his aspect as Paeon, heal Ares. And uh, a funny formula that we hear a few times uh, of Zeus and of Ares, and I believe even of a mortal or two, I'll have to see it, is he rejoices in his own strength. Rejoicing in his own strength, Ares returned to the feasting of the gods. And so it suggests that, well, if anybody's going to endure suffering from war, it's certainly not going to be the gods. And so, even when they get injured, we can avoid uh, feeling too much pity for them. Um, dainty as they may seem after Aphrodite's um, run-in with Diomedes. All right. Well, that's book five, and that's been our first major battle. Next time, we're going to talk about book six. We're going to see Hector, and we're going to see Hector return to the city of Troy and see how he avoids all those things that might draw him from his duty to his people, all those alternative duties that might, like sirens, call to him and call him away from that which is hardest to do, which is to fight a battle which he's doomed to lose. 
Um, particularly hard will be his motivation to run away with his wife and child in order to seek safety, but we'll have to discuss why he wouldn't want to do such a thing. Another, perhaps even more interesting motivation is why he never attempted to take Helen from Paris, especially because Helen will indicate that she finds Hector much more desirable than Paris, and that makes sense because in Troy, Hector's the top of the dominance hierarchy, and as Helen is the most attractive woman in existence at that time, to be married to her is indication of the height of your status and worth. And in fact, there will be some stories in the Odyssey that perhaps she also favored Achilleus, which would make perfect sense, as he's the top Achaean besides Agamemnon, which is, of course, why it's so interesting that Menelaus won Helen and not Agamemnon, and perhaps how he came to lose her in the first place because she wasn't with the proper man. And so she settled for a much lesser man, perhaps thinking that a greater man might come to get her. And so there are also suggestions in the Odyssey when she and Menelaus are de describing to Telemachus that, well, when Helen is particularly describing Odysseus to Telemachus, she describes Odysseus stealing into the city and her at one time giving him a bath, and scholars have made much of that idea, suggesting that perhaps it was more than a bath. And... That would suggest that she favored Odysseus too, the competent and intelligent one, which is further evidence of the evolving Greek ideal of competency through strength and battle prowess to competency through intelligence, which is a more general application of battle prowess. One can fight more battles and more abstract battles and even defeat opponents who are much greater in size and strength through the correct application of intelligence or pragmatic wisdom, the will of Athena, which is the will of Zeus. And so, we see that the will of Zeus is implemented by intelligence in the world. And so to do the intelligent thing is to do that which um, emboldens and strengthens one's, the structure of one's society. And so, the, the Achaeans will continue to embody that principle. And, well, this has been episode 21 of the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. And we've just concluded book 5 of Homer's Iliad. Please share. Please like, please call in, please ask questions, please support my Patreon account, and please have a wonderful day. Until next time.